Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. During the holidays, during the days of awe, especially during Yom Kippur, we may actually struggle with some difficult issues as we're focusing on our sin and we're confessing our sins to the Lord and together with our community and as we recognize we can't redeem ourselves and we confess we have no worthy deeds, we can become uh, especially sensitive to our deficiencies as Brian was speaking about earlier during worship. And when we confess, as part of Avinu Malkeinu, we confess that we have no worthy deeds, uh, that's when we may actually go from the point of saying I have no worthy deeds to a near synonym, I'm worthless. And if we have no worthy deeds, then our deeds are worthless, and this is where it can become quite difficult. If our deeds are worthless, what does it mean? Are we worthless? If we are worthless, you know what that means. It, it means we have no worth, we have no value. But maybe you can see where this is headed. To be worthless and without any value is a terrible condition to be in. And it raises a question that many people simply don't express, but they feel it. They think it. They're haunted by it. If I'm worthless, if my deeds are worthless, if my deeds have no value to God, then what is lovable about me? And how could God love me? So this brings us to the struggle that I've observed many people go through. And it's why, as Brian Rose was mentioning, you can feel dizzy after the holidays. You know, all this self-examination and all this honesty and all this confession. Uh, and then you finish and you enter into Sukkot, which is the season of joy and rejoicing. It's like, rejoicing? Are you kidding? I'm miserable. Uh, I've looked at everything bad about me. And, and so it leaves people struggling sometimes. And Yom Kippur is meant to be a time of reconciliation with God. A, a time when we recognize that atonement is necessary, but atonement has been made for us and the purpose of atonement is to bring us closer to God. But the whole process may actually leave some people uh, feeling even further away from God. I don't know if any of you have had that experience. But there can be questions that rise up. Is it impossible to please God? Is God always angry with us? Is God always finding fault with us? And 
For those who were raised with an angry parent or a fault-finding parent, this can be a really tough time. It can make you particularly vulnerable to thinking of God in the same way because our view of God is typically shaped by our relationship with our earthly parents. And those whose religious upbringing really emphasize the strictness of God and the justice of God and even the wrath of God, they may find their experience of Yom Kippur is just one more time when they feel even more worthless. One more time to feel even more unloved. And so the question is, is God really a loving God? And of course, when you're sitting in a room like this, in a sanctuary, or you're participating and you're asked this question in public, you would say, of course, God is a loving God. But I'm talking about the inner struggles that people have that they often don't give voice to. And it's important for us to pay attention to those things. Is God really a loving God? And that's what I want to explore today. And I think that the life and the death of Moses, which we're reading about this week and for the next few weeks, it can actually help us with this particular question because we read about the fact that Moses is not going into the promised land and he finds out he is going to die. And he's going to die soon. Now, everybody knows they're going to die, but it's unusual for someone to know that they are about to die. Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 48 and going to 52, we read this. On that same day, Adonai said to Moses, go up into the Avarim range to Mount Nebo in the land of Moab across from Jericho and look out over the land of Canaan which I am giving the people of Israel as a possession. And I want you to pay attention to that phrase, which I am giving the people of Israel. Because the Lord is saying, I'm going to do that for Israel, not for you, Moses. On the mountain you are ascending, you will die and be gathered to your people just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor, and I was gathered and was gathered to his people. Verse 51, the reason for this is that both of you broke faith with me there among the people of Israel at Meravat Kadesh, spring in the Tzin Desert. You, Moses, failed to demonstrate my holiness there among the people of Israel, both of you, Moses and Aaron. Verse 52, so you will see the land from a distance, but you will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. So there you have it. Moses and Aaron both failed. They failed to demonstrate God's holiness and they broke faith with the Lord. And the Lord tells Moses, and not only does he tell Moses privately, but all of us find out about it eventually because here we are reading it. Moses, you'll only see the land from a distance. You will not enter the land. That is a rough word to get. And then, in the coming weeks, 
we'll read in Deuteronomy chapter 34, starting in verse one. Not part of this week's portion, but connected thematically. Moses ascended from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the summit of Pisgah across from Jericho, and there Adonai showed him all the land. Now I want you to pay attention to that phrase, there Adonai showed him all the land. It could have said, and there Moses saw all the land. But that's not precise. What's precise is the Lord showed him. And we'll see just how important that is in a minute. Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, the land of Judah, all the way to the sea beyond. The Negev and the Arava, including the valley uh, with Jericho, the city of date palms as far away as Soar. Verse four, and Adonai said to him. Okay, so this is important. The Lord shows Moses and the Lord continues to speak to Moses. Adonai said to him, this is the land concerning which I swore to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over there. It's interesting here, the Lord is saying, Moses, do you see all this land? That's what I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob I would give to their descendants. It's not what I promised you, Moses. I promised Israel this. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over there. And so Moses, the servant of Adonai, died there in the land of Moab, as Adonai had said. So Moses sees it, he doesn't go in, but it's not the end of the story. We're gonna read an important verse, I believe. But I want you to pay attention to something about nature and character that we learn about Moses, and I think it's instructive for us, and I think as well, it can help us set a pattern for ourselves about how we want to live and how we want to grow and how we want to be, uh, what kind of people we want to be. I want you to take notice of this. It's the resilience of Moses. Moses gets this news that he's about to die and why. He gets this information that he will not go into the land and then he's shown the land. The Lord shows him the land and Moses also has to prepare himself to speak to Israel at this moment. It's an interesting dilemma. And when you get such news, you discover something about a person. So we will discover something about Moses. And he knows that Israel will be going in, but he won't. And I want you to take note of this. Moses finds joy. He finds joy in the fact that Israel will be going in and that God's purposes will be accomplished. And I, I wanna tell you about 
two words. One of them is English, and it's probably a word you've never used, most likely. Very uh, uncommon word. And the other one is a word that is in German, which I don't speak, and so you'll pardon how I manage to pronounce it. But here is the first word in English. It's, it's confelicity. How many of you have used that in the last week? Confelicity. And I credit my brother-in-law, Dennis, for introducing this word to me. It means to take pleasure in another person's happiness, to participate in the joy of other people. And you may not have known this word, but it's a useful word to know that it even exists. There, there is a way of capturing this idea in English, um, because there may have been times when you experienced it, and it may be part of your character, that you find joy when other people are doing well. When other people get good news, when other people find uh, success, or their prayers are answered, and you're finding joy in it. It's a wonderful quality that I believe Moses has. Moses has confelicity. Now, here's the other word, and it's a German word, and from what I have been told, there's no normal English word that is used commonly uh, as a synonym for this, it's schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Is that close, Michelle, how you would say it? Not bad. Okay. Say it louder so people can hear it correctly. Thank you. Yeah, because the R is softer in German, right? Freude. Yeah, sort of. Okay, that's how I hear it. Schadenfreude. It, this is a specific word that means to take pleasure in someone else's misfortune. <laughs> yes, when, when, when someone who's done you wrong has misfortune and you feel like, yeah, serves them right. <laughs> Anybody ever have that very high and noble feeling? Well, there's not a great English word for it, but the Germans do have a word for it. And I can tell you some funny anecdotes, but I cannot tell you those anecdotes at a time when I'm being recorded or when it's live stream, or when there will be a public record. But they were anecdotes we learned um, by hanging out with Hungarians, Ukrainians, and Russians, and discovering how they thought of each other. 
and how they compared their, what brought them joy. And the punchline, I won't tell you which group said this, well, I, I can't. Almost each of those groups said it about the other groups. That, uh, well, the punchline is this person praying and saying, you see, I have so little and my neighbor has so much. I have only a few cows and my neighbor has a hundred cows. Please answer me. Kill their cows. <laughs> I won't tell you the rest of the joke, but all that precedes it, but that captured Scheidenfreude. It is the desire that is satisfied when someone else suffers or is punished or loses. It's taking pleasure in someone else's misfortune. And I know there's probably somebody here who says, there's got to be an English word for that. And the closest is, and this one is, man, I'm just gonna give it to you. You're never gonna use it, I won't either. It's epicaricacy. Exactly, like, there's no way to fit that into a normal sentence. It, it's from Greek. Epa means upon, charis means joy, and kakos means evil. <laughs> and so it means rejoicing at or taking fun in or getting pleasure from the misfortune of others. But you're never gonna hear that. It's, but you should start using confelicity. So you could say, you know what? I've discovered a quality I want to nurture in myself, confelicity. The quality of taking joy in the success and blessing that other people experience. Now, the closest thing to Schadenfreude that I can think of is throwing shade. Uh huh. Yeah. Finds joy at belittling someone else in a clever or snarky way. Let me read to you a psalm that captures confelicity. Psalm 20, verses four and five. It's one of my wife's favorite scriptures and guides her in much of her prayer. May he give you the desires of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy at your victory and raise a banner in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your petitions. That is the prayer of confelicity. It's the prayer that says, I want you to succeed. I find joy when you succeed. It makes me happy that God would answer your prayers and do for you. Sometimes when people's hearts are broken, when people are disappointed, when hope deferred has made their heart sick, 
they shift from the attitude of confelicity to the attitude of schadenfreude, where they don't want to hear good news from other people. They're thinking too much about themselves. And they're thinking, if someone, if someone has been praying and gets an answer to their prayer, but this person doesn't get an answer to their own, they feel bad, not joyful. So the single person who finds out that their single friend is getting married may have this feeling. The, the couple that wants to have children may have this feeling. They've wanted a child for so long and have not been able to conceive. And then a friend of theirs announces their pregnancy and that the child is born. And sometimes they shift from confelicity to schadenfreude. It can happen. And in the same way, it can happen to anyone. And this is what we learn from Moses. It didn't happen to him. Why? Because he found his joy in the purposes of God and not just in his own success. That's what brought Moses great joy. And this is what Yeshua was talking about when he said, those who hold on to the end will be saved. And the Greek word that is used to record what Yeshua said is telos which can be translated end, but it better is to translate it the ultimate purpose, who holds on to the high goal and the real purpose. That one will be saved. Or, as Paul taught, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and, do you know, and, and are called according to his purpose. His, pur his, his purpose. You see, we live in an era when, when people think, we're taught this, we're nurtured that do find yourself and you'll be happy. But many people who have found themselves are unhappy. There is, in fact, a joy in finding God in his purposes and then organizing your life around that. This is what Moses did. Think of Moses' opportunity 40 years away from Israel, away from his people, living in a land, he is now a successful, what? Shepherd. And he came from Egypt, prince of Egypt, if you will, a land that considers shepherds to be worthless, unlovable, of no value. And this is what he's doing. 
So he's now got a 40-year career in isolation from his people. Twice in isolation. And yet, he's the one God calls to lead the children of Israel out of slavery. He's the one. Not somebody else. Him. And that can make you dizzy. If, you know, it's like, I got my whole life organized around being a shepherd in Midian. And you're telling me to go back to Egypt? The obvious question that people hate to hear expressed, I'll put it into words, but people don't like to admit they say this to the Lord because they don't say it, they think it and feel it. It's, it's this, are you out of your mind? This is how we often react to the Lord. We act like he's the one who can't think straight. And the reason is, he's given us something to do that makes us not think straight. But you know what will sustain you? It's what sustained Moses. It wasn't that Moses was able to fulfill everything he wanted. It's that he saw that the Lord was going to fulfill everything the Lord wanted. And that brought him joy. So here you have a special kind of confelicity. It's the joy of seeing the Lord have joy. Yeshua said, obey my commands that my joy may be complete in you. My joy. The kingdom of God is not a matter of what you eat and drink, though those things are of some value to everyone who cooks well and likes food. But the kingdom is not in that, but is in righteousness peace, and, hello, I'm asking you. Do you know? And, some of you I can hear. It's not a trick question. It, it, there's only, I think, one place in scripture that says it exactly like this. But righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit and joy in the Holy Spirit is not a charismatic or Pentecostal way of saying it. It just means joy in the Holy Spirit. All the joy that the Holy Spirit can give you, all the righteousness and all the peace and all the joy. Joy. To find that God takes pleasure in bringing joy to his people, it's important to know. That even when God looked at Moses and said, Moses, you're not going in, and here's why. 
that Moses could say, I get it. Okay, Lord, I get it. And at the same time, the story goes on and there's one more verse that I want to show you. It's not in this week's uh, reading, but it's towards the end of this whole series that we'll see. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse six. Many translations just put it this way, and he buried him. Well, let me back up. Verse five, so Moses, the servant of Adonai, died there in the land of Moab, as Adonai had said. Now verse six, and he buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab, but to this day no one knows the exact place. I, I don't know how, but of course Moses didn't write verse five and six. <laughs> but verse six, and he buried him in a valley near Beth Peor. The Hebrew is, is pretty clear. It says he buried him. So who was buried? It's obvious. Moses was buried. So then, who did the burying? Aha, this is the question. <laughs> who buried Moses? I think it was the Lord. And that's why I prefer the translation, and the Lord buried him, or the Lord buried Moses. Because I think it fits the Hebrew best. It also fits the reality of the relationship between the Lord and Moses. The Lord buried Moses. The Lord was there with Moses when he died. This also fits the traditional Jewish understanding of who did the bearing, but it creates a problem for um, philosophical Judaism that views God as uh, the way Maimonides did in, a, pardon me for saying this, in an Islamic way or Islamic influence way that God is, is uh, is without form and has no embodiment and cannot be uh, physically present or physically described. That's not according to Torah, but that influenced Maimonides, who grew up in and lived among uh, Muslims and Muslim theology, not just not just Islam, but platonic ideals and other things, if you're familiar with philosophy or connected to all that. But this idea that the Lord buried Moses means somehow the Lord got physical and was able to manage burying Moses. So some, some of the sages of Israel have said, well, it couldn't, it couldn't be the Lord who buried Moses, so Moses had to bury himself. Moses, <laughs> and th this is actually the thinking of some of the sages. It's this, Moses got to the place, started digging, dug in the right place, and then 
expired. I don't know if he crawled into the grave first and then expired, or whether he just expired, according to that idea, and, and gravity got him into the right place. But then there's a, the obvious problem with that interpretation. Even if you can bury yourself, I mean, you can dig your own grave and fall into it, um, you cannot easily <laughs> shovel in the dirt on top of yourself. And it's probably impossible to choose to like pull all the dirt on. You know, it's just so far-fetched that other sages say, nah, that couldn't have happened. So then here's the workaround. It must have been with angels. Angels helped. There's a problem with that. Here's the problem. It doesn't say angels. So the text doesn't say angel. It, the text in Hebrew does not say Moses buried himself, nor does it say angels buried Moses. It says he did. He did. And the only he other than Moses in that text is the Lord. Okay. Let's think about this. The Lord buried Moses. The Lord was there when Moses died. The Lord prepared Moses' body for burial because that has to be done too. The Lord buried which can also mean he prepared the burial place. He dug out the place where Moses would be buried. The Lord conducted the funeral for Moses. What kind of funeral? Some kind of funeral. All this teaches us that Moses' failure didn't destroy his relationship with God. Do you get that? So the confelicity of Moses endured the Lord said, Moses, you fell short. You're not going in. I'll still be faithful to Israel, to the promises I made to the fathers, but you're not going in. You're not going in. I'll fulfill my purposes another way. And Moses continued to have joy and could proclaim the goodness of the Lord to Israel, knowing that reality. And the Lord was not divided. And only uh, someone who is a, like a strong father can understand this, a strong grandfather, a strong mother, grandmother can understand this, that you can be firm with your children and discipline them and still love them and not be cruel and not fall into hate. How many parents can confirm that? That there are times when you have to do what your child protests. And parents sometimes even hear, I hate you. Or they wonder, does this child think I'm terrible because I'm doing what I have to do? Scripture says, 
in, in some brutal language that only illegitimate children aren't disciplined. But children who have parents that take responsibility for them do discipline them. And no one likes to be disciplined. It's, it would be a weird child who said, thanks for that punishment, mom. I got a lot out of it. <laughs> but the Lord and Moses stayed close to each other. That's what I want you to understand. The, the Lord, as firm as he was, still loved Moses. And Moses did not fall into this weird kind of disappointment that, that could be understood at the human level, but not at the level that Moses was called to be. You could understand it, but Moses found joy in the purposes of God more than his purposes. Do you see that? And he wasn't shaken simply because his purposes were not being fulfilled, because the Lord's purposes were. And Moses had the chance to edit all this out. Leave it out so you and I would never know. But he didn't. He told the truth. So Moses sings praises to the Lord even as he's about to die, even though he couldn't go into the promised land. Moses still loved God. And it teaches us that God still loved Moses even though Moses sinned. Atonement was made. Moses and the Lord are reconciled. The Lord buries him. The Lord is with his great friend Moses at the end, and the Lord takes upon himself the responsibility to bury his friend Moses, and Moses and the Lord are still together, and it's a beautiful story. And for those of us who are messianic, it works. Because we know that God can be present in our time-space world. He can be with us, yes? And so the idea that God could manage to physically bury Moses, that works for us. It doesn't work for everybody, believe me. But for us, it makes sense. And we learn a lot, going back to this week's portion, with some of the song that Moses sang. Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4, just to pull out. He says, I will proclaim the name of Adonai. Come, declare the greatness of our God, the rock. His work is perfect and all his ways are just. A trustworthy God who does no wrong. He is righteous and straight. In other verses, God is described as the rock and the savior, the rock of our salvation, the rock who begot us, the rock who fathered us, the rock who brought us forth the God who gave you birth. That's our God. And King David, whose psalm is used, his song is used in the Haftorah portion. And King David was familiar with sin because he had sinned and he was reconciled and restored to God. But this is what David sang. Chai Adonai. Adonai is alive, blessed is my rock, exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. Chai Adonai. 
And then one last reference, it's from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 15, verses three and four, and it says, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, there are a lot of ways you could understand that, but I like to think that Moses and Yeshua wrote it together. They collaborated. But I also wonder, did, if they wrote it together, did they work it out together? And those of you who write songs might know this. Those of you who compose might know that it, if they wrote it together, you could imagine Moses and Yeshua like singing it together, a little duet. And this is, this is the praise in Revelation 15. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. That's the song. Moses and Yeshua, they were good with each other. That's why the Lord could take a shovel or whatever it took to dig a grave and bury his friend. And that's why his friend, knowing he was about to die, wasn't miserable. He sang praises to the Lord. Hazinu. Let us sing. That's Moses. And that's why you gotta respect him. <laughs> that's why you gotta love him. <laughs> you gotta love a guy like that who loved the Lord so much and who the Lord loved so much. He's a great example. Let's close with prayer. Lord, thank you that you love us and you prove your love. You've made a way to reconcile us. You gave atonement for our sin so that we wouldn't be separated from you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your forgiveness and your steadfast love. And Lord, it is true we have no worthy deeds because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. But what we do that's good is important to you and you take notice of it. And you know this, Lord, because you teach us that it's impossible to please you without faith, without trusting you and being faithful. Let us be people who bring joy to you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we gotta close. You know, you can tell it's me speaking because the time is out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> but if you wonder, can I speak shorter? The answer is yes, watch Friday night live from home, you'll see. Let's close right now with Aaron's blessing. <clears throat> and if your protocol permits you to be close with others, you can. I thought you were going to say, speak shorter. <laughs> speak shorter, yes. And now a short message. <laughs> I know, bad joke, go ahead. <laughs> Cantor Aaron and I 
learned our humor basically when we were 10 through 12 years old. And we're sort of building on that still. At least I can say that about me. <laughs> about me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Join us next door for fellowship and refreshments, and don't forget to plan to be with us for the Sukkot picnic. Shabbat Shalom, everyone.